When we talked to the folks at the Wetumpka Public Library last week, they had some really interesting questions for us. We thought we'd share those with you today. Welcome to Longleaf Breeze, subsistence farmers using three simple principles, approaching but never reaching subsistence. It's got to be fun while we're doing it, and we don't make all misstatements. And now, Lee and Amanda Borden. Thanks, Adrian. Welcome to our podcast of May the 22nd, 2014. Last week's podcast was a doozy. We accept that. We went for 40, almost 43 minutes, and we certainly didn't set out to do that when we started, so we figured today we'll have a quick podcast just focusing on the questions and answers that came up from the group after we finished our talk. We'll get into it, and then you and I might have some thoughts to share after we play that. So the first question is, do you compost? I do compost, and uh, because we're organic and I don't use a lot of synthetic fertilizers, when someone asks me, did you fertilize that? I use I use compost to fertilize. Um, and with just two of us living there, actually our daughter lives with us right now, but with just two people, um, it is hard to generate as much compost as you'd like. No, that's my fault. Yeah. But we, do, we supplement when we can. We, Lee used to think about he might go to the Pizza Hut and ask for their discards. <laughs> but we haven't ever done it. So. But that also includes... When I cut, if, unless a plant is diseased, when I change, like you know, the end of the summer when the plants are spent, if they're not, if they don't have pests or disease, those can go into the compost. So, other ways to get it. So, what do you use for your compost? What, how do you compost? What do you, where do you let it sit while it's composting? That is really a good question, and we've tried different methods, and I will tell you what our challenges have been. We started out with just a. Um, fence material sort of like a what would you call it goat fence yeah and piling all the including kitchen waste in there um, and we had a, a variety of varmints that wanted to feast on it I had a fox I had a possum I had a crow I had our own dog that went in there and uh, we tried all kinds of different things to keep them out the dog turned out to be the most persistent yes. <laughs> um but for my birthday last year, Lee got me one of those black rotating containers that Costco, I don't know where it came from, but anyway, you can get them commercially. And um, that's turned out to be the best because critters can't get in except the good kind, the, the ones that break down the, the compost, and um, it seemed to compost pretty quickly. That's like the barrel that you just rolled out. Yes, yes. You just rotate, turn it every so often. And the nice thing about this tumbler that we use is that it's black, so it stays warm. It conserves moisture, and compost is all about getting enough moisture in there to keep the little critters busy and keep them healthy and so forth. And it has worked out well. The only problem we have with it is that even when it's time for the compost to be sitting and curing, we keep adding stuff to it. So basically what happens is that I reach a point where I'll say, okay, it's time to empty the compost whether it's ready or not, and I just take it down and put it at a point where it can finish composting in an open space. But we think it's not quite as tempting to critters at that point because it's broken down enough that they're not getting like a, 
you know, a full piece of cheese or something out of it, whatever they want to eat. So I, I set up two big trays and just dumped stuff in there. And then I went and bought some earthworms and had the best compost ever. And, and I will say that's a, there's a, um, also a, comp, a publication that ACES puts out about compost. And there's a certain formula of green to brown waste. It sounds as if you're doing it exactly right. And, yes, you can use worms and worm castings. And, and um, I've wanted to get into that. We haven't tried the worm thing, but I'd love to. Um, the other thing that uh, you mentioned that's so important is having two. And uh, that's what we do at Extension. We have, like, multiple compost. Um, and probably what we should think about is investing in a second black Cylinder. Hey, 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 hey. <laughs> we should think about it. I'll have another birthday this year, so. <laughs> but that, that's because that, that does solve that problem of, yeah, getting it, not letting it cure. Why would you need two composting tumblers or composting bins? Why wouldn't one be enough? And I, well, I think it gets down to what he was saying about my tendency, which is I'm always going to have compost. And so when I keep, you have to, um, at some point, for it to cure, you know, if you if you put like a, let's say I'm peeling carrots and the carrot peeling goes into the compost, I don't want to put carrot peelings directly onto my vegetables. It'll burn them. It's what we call hot. You have to let it break down so that you don't have recognizable pieces of carrot in there. Does that make sense? So that, and I that takes varying, varying lengths of time to do. Um, in this tumbler type system, it seems to hasten the process. Yes, it does. I would say we had usable compost within three months, four months? Oh, two or three weeks. Two or three weeks. Well, was it usable, though? Yeah. Okay. Uh, that was, but that was because I was not continuing to put fresh compost in there. So the reason to have two is so that you can have it continue to break down while all the while you've got fresh, hot vegetables going in there. What do you think about upside-down gardening, particularly uh, tomatoes? I have to confess I've never tried it, um, and I, I hate to knock something when I haven't tried it. It doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to me just because you know, I think there's a reason why tomatoes were intended to grow this way, sort of <laughs> the way God created them. But I will tell you where I've seen it, and I think it makes sense, is um, we used to, when we lived in Birmingham, we used to walk past a senior citizen home all the time, and they had some of those upside down upside-down tomatoes, That's a good point. and they could do it that way. It, it made it possible, possible for them to grow tomatoes. So I'd say if it enables you to do something you couldn't otherwise do, worth checking into. It, they seemed to have tomatoes on the plant, didn't they? They were getting tomatoes. Yeah. Are strawberries really hard to grow in central Alabama? Would you recommend them for a beginning gardener? They are not hard to grow here. Um, you want to get the right cultivar. Um, there's one called Camarosa that grows really well here. I actually got mine from Oakview Farms, not too far from here. Uh, but what has made it difficult for us this year, not only having to transplant them and change our raised bed uh, out, but also the fact that I have a vole or a, some kind of critter that's, that's getting to it. Squirrels, squirrels are problems too. Um, but if you can keep varmints off of them, they are pretty easy to grow. And there are a couple of ways you can do it. One is um, what's called a matted row. You, you actually, they're going to um, produce daughter plants. And they're, in that sense, they're perennial. That is, you, the mother plant will produce this year, 
you'll notice if you've watched a strawberry plant, it kind of sends out a little shoot kind of thing that produces a daughter plant that next year will have the fruit on it. And in fact, what I've got growing now are the daughter plants from last year. I just took them away from their mother and put them in a separate uh, bed because I had to redo that bed. Um, there's another, you'll see a lot of the, if you go to the U-Picks around here, most of them use plasticulture. They'll put plastic mulch down to keep the weeds out, and then they have, those are like annuals. Those, they can't form a daughter plant because it can't attach, so they're just going to start over next year with new strawberries. Um, there's nothing wrong with either of those methods. You can get good results. Um, but if you're wanting to, and, and the reason a lot of people do the plasticulture the, the worst enemy to me of strawberries when I started out was weeds. The weeds took over, and, and I just couldn't control them. So that's why you saw the picture I showed of that bed. With, I was very careful. What I did was when I planted the strawberries, I took something uh, called um, weed guard. It's a brown sort of a mulch fabric that you, or mulch paper, type, but it's biodegradable that you can buy. I rolled it out. And I had the little strawberry plugs. They're really even smaller than a cell pack. And I just took my utility knife and made a hole in the paper where I was going to plant each one, stuck it in, easy, covered that with straw, and I didn't have a weed problem. So if you're going to start out as a beginning gardener doing that, be a friend to yourself and splurge and get some kind of weed guard. If you don't want to pay the money for weed guard, you can actually use newspaper. And I'm told that for mulch, if you get eight thicknesses of newspaper, that's enough to keep most weeds um, suppressed. Just overlap it so you don't have little weeds coming up through there. And then cover that over with straw or pine bark or something, and you're in business. And the first strawberries you pick are always the best. Always. They, they're always sweeter and bigger and juicier. And the, the, the longer the season goes on with strawberries, the, they get smaller, and they're not as sweet, and they're not as fun. So what did we leave out? I don't know whether we left anything out, but I was interested in a couple of the topics that came up and would like to pursue those in a little more depth right now. One was on composting. You know, we talked about our uh, rotating um, that tumbler. black tumbler, right, that we like so well. Um, but And there's a lot one could say about composting, and this is not a podcast on composting by any means, but... One observation upon reflection is that composting is much simpler than most people think or make it seem. Yeah, I, we've, <clears throat> we have noted that over the years. When you read about composting, when you hear a, somebody make a talk on composting, they inevitably want to talk with you about a ratio of greens and browns, and they want to warn you about this and that, and you must be careful, and you cannot do this, and you cannot do that, and you must do this. Honestly, throw some stuff in a pile, and you'll be fine. And if it stinks, throw some more hay or straw or leaves on it, and if you want to give it a turn every now and then, do... Uh, throw the hose on it every once in a while and wet it down and you'll be fine. It's just not that complicated. Yeah, I do think the scientific evidence is very important for people to be aware that that's there. Um, and through ACEs and other um, sci you know, groups that, that are um, research-based, there's a reason why they tell you the formula. The idea is to help the, uh, the compost 
break down as quickly as possible for you to use it. And there are some safety issues as far as, you know, you don't want to use compost that's too hot or has not broken down completely and might have, um, um, you know, E. coli or something like that in it. That's the main precaution. Okay. But, well, but I agree with what you're saying. That's what you describe is what we are doing, and it is working for us. And that's and, all we can really say. And I will say I am not speaking as a master gardener. I'm not speaking for ACES. I'm not speaking for extension. But in my personal view and my personal experience, the overstressing all of the rules and the musts and the must-nots intimidates people and keeps them from just going ahead and getting started with composting. And I, I really wish we would just relax and say, you know, give it a try. It, there's almost no danger if, as long as you let it compost for a while. You're fine. Yeah, t- it just might take more time if you are, and you can make adjustments. But the other thing I want to add is that this tumbler has made ours um, easier, it composts more quickly, and keeps the critters out. So the, the bad critters. Yeah, th- the, that the, last is, has been a biggie for us, particularly about keeping Adi out, the dog. Um, it, it, we can put things in the tumbler now, and we know they'll be fine, and they will. Um, and they do compost very quickly because it keeps mm-hmm. them hot. Right. But with just the two of us contributing to it, and sometimes three of us with Adrian, um, we don't have nearly enough compost to to fertilize everything that we grow. And we think we're typical. We think most people who grow their own food wish they had about eight times as much compost as That's they right. do. That's right, because if they have a small family, they're probably not producing a lot of compost. If they have a large family, they are producing more compost, but they also need to grow more food and, and use more compost for their garden. So uh, it's, it's something that... Um, We've certainly taken steps to supplement with off-the-farm compost and that kind of thing, but um, it was an important topic for our, our guests that night at the um, Wetumpka Library, and we certainly wish to continue the conversation with anyone who cares to. The other question that you and I wanted to spend a little more time on is those upside-down tomatoes, because the question has come up a couple of times even since Wetumpka. Um, because people are really hearing a lot about them now. They're thinking about them. And I've asked you to do a little research and see if you can share with us some of the advantages and the disadvantages of using those little upside-down tomatoes. Well, first of all, um, well, I'm not going to name names of the, uh, the name brands that you buy sort of ready-made, but the reviews are not good on those. Um, what I can say is that, uh, and, th- and those also tend to be expensive, um, there's one gentleman that was, I read an article in the New York Times about uh, the trend toward using these upside down tomatoes. And one guy saved a good bit of money by using five gallon buckets, some of which he salvaged without having to pay for them and just putting a hole in the top and growing them out of the um, the buckets that way. So that was, kept his cost down. Um, and there are all kinds of ways to, you know, you can go online and, and find all kinds of DIY ways to um, rig up upside-down tomatoes. But my initial reaction when the question came up the other night was, um, well, if God had intended a tomato be, to be you know, growing upside-down, he would have made it that way. Um, but the truth is that there are some advantages to growing them that way 
um, especially, for example, to keep pests away from the tomatoes, to, uh, early blight, some of the blights, uh, because you've got better ventilation if you don't, because you're not probably going to be tempted to plant them really too close together. Um, but on the other hand, you have uh, roots that will dry out much faster because they're sitting up there on top of the plant. So you better be prepared to water it at least every day. And depending on the system you're using, maybe more than that. Um, they tend to work better for smaller tomatoes, like a, a cherry or a grape type tomato, and an indeterminate. That is, those are the ones that don't, their, their fruit comes in at varying times during the season. They tend to get tall and leggy and spread out. The determinate type tend to be a shorter, stubbier plant with a thicker stem. And with all the fruit ripening at one time, that puts a strain on an upside-down tomato and can break the branch off real easily. So that's not really recommended as a type of tomato to use in that um, system. But, um, you know, if you've got a problem with you don't have enough space to, or you don't have a large garden, it is a space saver. And um, that, that's one of many ways you could save space. If you have a problem with deer, this is something I had not thought about until I read that article um, in the New York Times that, that one gentleman had, he, he, fat, he fat, set up a pulley system and elevated his buckets of tomatoes up about 16 feet off the ground so that the deer couldn't eat his tomatoes. And of course, he had to be able to lower them when he wanted to harvest his own <laughs> tomatoes. But yeah, that's pretty clever. You know, you might be able to keep, and also might be the same person. The one person was so enthralled with the way the tomatoes did, they actually planted their peppers that way too and said it worked well for jalapenos. They got a, a nice big yield from it. Um, one thing that I thought was interesting is that uh, they actually did consult some um, some experts. For example, one gentleman at Cornell University in the horticulture department, um, he was, he's a professor there, Hans Christian Wien, um, he was quoted as saying this, and I tend to agree with him. He says, growing things upside down seems like a fad to me, but I'm glad people are fooling around with it and hope they will let us traditionalist gardening snobs know what we've been missing. And I tend to be the same way. I'm a traditionalist, um, but I'd also, I'm open to anything. So never say never, right? Well, I would chime in and say, if if you're not now growing anything and you're tempted to get a couple of upside-down tomatoes and try growing something, I say absolutely. Have some fun. Go for it. Uh, you won't have to mess with stakes or cages or anything like that. You can just hang them up and give it a whirl. So I, I'm all for it. Uh, we don't think the long-term prospects are good. We don't expect to be doing a lot of it ourselves, but who knows? We may give it a well, try. For example, one of the things, and I didn't mention this, one gentleman said he, it really helped him because he had cutworms. And I've had problems with cutworms, too. They tend to live in your soil, and you know, some people don't have problems with them. I do. And if you put out a tender little newbie um, plant uh, seedling of a tomato plant, uh, the cutworm can pretty much literally cut it off, you know, at, at the um, at the root level and or at the soil level and no more tomato. But it stands to reason. Don't have problems with cutworms in the hanging tomatoes. So that's an interesting or the upside down tomato. So that and if it gets to be a problem for me, I'm not op opposed to um, trying it for that reason. But it's like you said, if, it, if it's the only way we can get you to try to grow a tomato, go for it. 
So have a good week. We will look forward to visiting with you soon. Hope your days in the garden are good and that you're not sweating too much. Take it easy. You've been listening to Longleaf Breeze with Lee and Amanda Borden. You can call the farm at 334-625-8682. Send email to letters at longleafbreeze.com. Our address is P.O. Box 780-446, Tallahassee, Alabama, 36078. Visit us at longleafbreeze.com to learn more about the farm, to browse our archive, and to look over our planting database. You can also read the daily farm log and check in with Lee and Amanda. That's longleafbreeze.com.